James D. Fury, and this is Blackballed. On, I believe it was June 29th, Cheryl Hope came on the show, and it was a first for this podcast, and a first for Cheryl, in which she detailed the abuse that she had suffered at the hands of elders within the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, aka the Plymouth Brethren Crazy Cult. And since then, we have experienced an avalanche of awareness of this group, thanks to the bravery of people like Cheryl, people like Lane Admiral, people like Carmen Dreber, people like Richard Marsh and others, where we want to shine a spotlight on one of the most problematic features of a Western democracy, which is the way that the freedom of expression, freedom of religion is is interpreted by the state. And what the state has done, and when I say the state, I mean mostly in Western countries, Australia, New Zealand, the UK, United States, Canada, is that we have sacrificed lives for the protection of religion. And we feel, uh, at least I feel, that we can have freedom of religion without having to enable cults to abuse people. And I spoke to my guest today a few months ago and we have a uh uh, my lawyer has basically told me that i cannot have people on the show unless that they uh, that that detail abuse unless they have filed a police report but if that person has already told their story then we are clear in something called grant versus torstar in the united er, in canada uh, which allows people to broadcast and to talk about stories that have already been published elsewhere And so I invited my guest today to the show so that she can share her story. And her name is Laura Payne. Laura, how are you? Hello, I'm great. Um, It's good to finally have you on. Uh, I watched your podcast with uh, the the crew on the Get a Life podcast, uh, Richard Marsh, Carmen Drever, Cheryl Hope, and Lane Admiral. And I watched it twice. And uh, I'm glad you did it. And I'm glad that we can have you on today. First of all, can you tell us where you're from? I'm from San Antonio, Texas, and I live in a little suburb outside of San Antonio now. Okay. I I learned some stuff watching your podcast with uh, the Get a Life crew. And I didn't know this. I I just want to start off here just because I find it interesting. The San Antonio locality for the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church was set up because of Vietnam. Is that right? Can you explain that? So. So um, during the Vietnam War, um, of course, the United States was drafting um, people to join. And um, like, I, I don't remember exact dates. I think my dad was in 1969. He was drafted, maybe 68. I'm not sure. Um, but he was actually drafted with Carmen Drever's father at the same time. And so they got to basic training. All of the basic training for the for the army at the time was done in at Fort Sam here in San Antonio. Um, that's not the case now. The army has basic training in other places, but they were all coming here. And because there was so many, I guess you could say, young men from the PBCC at the time, we called it the Plymouth Brethren or the Exclusive Brethren that they decided that um, there needed to be a meeting here, like a locality, like a a group of individuals that were brethren that came to live here in San Antonio so that on Sunday they would have a place to go for church for the Lord's Supper. And they would drive to the base and pick up the men and take them back to their home and have the Lord's Supper. So... It strikes me that it might. It was it a different time back then because I, I, we're, we're, cause I, from what I understand, 
brethren members aren't allowed to vote. No. But they're allowed <laughs> but to yet go they fight. donate an insane amount of money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But they're allowed to go fight for their country? Yeah, but they were conscientious objectors. They couldn't uh, carry a weapon. Wow. Yeah. That only works out in that, what's that movie, Heartbreak Ridge or whatever it's called? Yeah, something like that yeah. where the medic saves all those people. <laughs> I love that movie. I'm not even religious, and I was really moved by that movie. I thought it was a good movie. Yeah. Um, okay, so you were you were born in the Brethren, as most people were, uh, right. almost everyone, actually. And your family was part, were you like third generation or something? Um, I'm not positive i know my parents were both born into it okay now my grandparents i i'm not positive there i i think my grandpa came into it i don't know the story about how i haven't asked my mom um and on my dad's side i'm not sure if my grandpa was born into it or if he was the first one that came into it but i know that like several of his family had been in before him. Okay. I, I'm not positive on all the details. Okay. Now, can you give us an idea before we get into the, the, the you know, the, the more painful stuff? What is life like for a child growing up inside the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church? Um, well, I mean, when you're a kid, you don't know any different, <laughs> but... Mm. Like all the things that your school, like at the time we went to public school, they have their own schools now. But when I was growing up, we went to public school. So like I looked different because we always had to wear a skirt or a dress. We weren't allowed to wear pants. We couldn't wear jewelry. We couldn't cut our hair. Um, as you get older, like you can't wear makeup or anything. So you felt different because your clothing was different. And um, I got made fun of a little bit. Not not really that bad, really. Um, it was more when I got to middle school and they required you to wear this headscarf on your head. And I would wear it to school, take it off and stick it in my locker and then put it on at the end of the day before my mom came to pick me up. Because <laughs> I was like, I'm not wearing this thing. <laughs> I think I was in like sixth or seventh grade. Um, we couldn't like go to our friend's house. I had a friend down the street that went to school with me. And I would say that we were friends from probably like first grade or maybe even kindergarten. Like I knew her all my life. I still know her, but I wasn't friends in the sense of, I didn't go to her house. She didn't come to my house. That wasn't allowed. Um, yeah, you're you not allowed to break bread as they say. With right, which really means you can't eat with anyone who is not in your church. Right. And technically, really, you can't have friends with people who aren't in your church. Although they were my friends at school, that's that's where the friendship ended. There's a school friend only. Right. Um, um, now, as we've detailed uh, over and over again on this podcast, um, the the life of women inside the Plymouth Brethren is is oppressive and basic. Um, you, you can't really speak unless you have permission to speak. Your job is to basically have babies, take care of babies, um, to to sort of uh, obey your husband and all that stuff. Does that start for little girls when they're young? Are they conditioned to understand that? And is there a difference between like a like a four or five year old girl and a four four or five year old boy both inside the brethren? Is there like a difference between how they're treated at that age? Um, in the sense of like the you start training the little girls right away, like to help out with ironing or washing or cleaning or, you know, we have these church meetings in San Antonio. We had them probably at least once a year. If, if not more, there's different kinds of them. They had three day meetings. They had fellowship meetings and it's the different names for them. were just kind of describing like, I guess the importance of them or whatever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they they would kind of be like church revivals, I guess, where people would come and they would, you have, we didn't believe in staying in hotels or eating in restaurants. So you house them, you feed them three meals a day. You go to church, you know, 
At 3D meetings, you go twice a day. At fellowship meetings, I think it was once a day. Um, and somebody important that's like a leader in another city comes and like preaches. You know what it's I like mean? It's like a billing system, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, yeah, I would say, yeah, from a young age, you know, there's like the men are the ones that go to work and make the money and the women stay home and you know that's what you're going to do. You, you're going to get married one day and have babies and do all the household stuff, like very 1950-ish. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it. Um, and, But uh, <laughs> life for you and the brethren uh, was was pretty dark, though. Yeah, so my story is a little interesting because my dad was the local leader. Oh, wow. Um, when I was a little kid. So I have one life that is from birth to age 10 while my dad was the leader. And then I have this second life from age 10 and a half to when I left at 21. And um, he got booted from being the leader. And I don't even know what for, but it wasn't a good reason. They just decided he was no longer the leader. And that life was also bad in a different way. So, I don't know. We want to just jump right in. <laughs> Whatever you're comfortable with. I, you know, I, I wasn't sure how to, I'm, I'm never sure. Like, I'm going to be totally honest. I am not an expert at this, right? Like, I, I, all yeah. I care about is that you're comfortable. And Yeah, and, well, you know, this is and, not my first time to tell the story, so I'm not as, like, nervous as I have been okay. in the past. Okay. But, so, my dilemma as a kid, like, when I first started thinking about leave, leaving, I was probably 15 or 16. Mm-hmm. Um. I was getting to the age where I was old enough to want something to be done about what had happened to me. And I wanted to address what we would call the assembly. And um, that would be the church group and go to church and like bring it up. Like this is what has happened and, and like solve the issue. And of course the, the, no, we're not doing that. (laughs) And so at the same time, I had wanted to write a letter. If, if I can't do that, then I would like to write a letter and, um, to one of my abusers. And they were like, well, that person is not in the church anymore. Like they've been as communicated. We don't know if you can do that. So they had to ask like permission from the higher ups if that was even allowed. Anyways, to backtrack a little bit back to my childhood. Um, So from age four to age 11, I was abused by three different people and I'm going to choose to leave them nameless for lots of reasons. (laughs) Um, I think I'm pretty positive that all three of them had also been abused by someone older than them. Hmm. I, you know, have no proof of that, but that seems to be the case. And the person that started the abusing, he, so there was, so there's four families when I was growing up. Um, four last names, I guess you could say in San Antonio, there's actually five households before last names. And he affected every single household. He did something to somebody more than one person in each family. I think on the get a life podcast, we added it up as like about 10 people or something were probably affected by sexual abuse. And then in turn, some of those people that that person abused, then turned around and abused me. And I know the first time it happened, I was four because I know like some outside, like we were building a church building and I know how old I was when they were building it. Like I know what year it was. So I know I was four. Um, The, I never know how graphic to get, but like the first few things I remember is being like objects messed with private in my privates um objects and fingers and like molested and and fondled and whatever and then it 
escalated and they're like showing me how to do certain things. And then the end part was, um, again, I want to leave that person's name <laughs> nameless. Um, I was raped. I was sodomized. I was made to do oral sex. Um, like pretty much everything you can think of sexually. And so although I knew it was wrong, I didn't really know what to do about it. And there were several times where like the situation was almost caught by an adult and I would deny, deny, deny. And um, so it stopped when I was about 11 or 12 and that person left the brethren. They were no longer in our church. But as you grow to be a teenager, you know that you're supposed to be getting married and going to have kids and live this life. And I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. Like two of my abusers were still sitting in church every single day. We went to church every day. So oh, I'm wow. having to see them every day. Like, I just got to the point where I was like, I can't do this. I can't live this life. I know this is the only life I've ever known, but I can't do this. Like something has to be done. It has to be dealt with. It has to be, I, I you know, like there has to be some kind of consequence. And we had this thing called a care meeting. I don't know if the other that have been on have talked about it. Care is this meetings the monthly these, meeting. Sorry, yeah, these yeah. monthly meetings where you would like talk about the issues. If something had come up, it would be solved. You know, it was also when they would um, decide how much money they were giving to whoever, like the whole white envelope system, the money, yeah, the Tony Soprano system, laundering, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Yeah, the mafia. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know That's exactly what it is. But that's what they would they would decide, like how much money they were giving to which locality or which person and all of this. So I at 14, 15, I was in ninth grade. I had started talking to a girl that had recently married someone from San Antonio. And that's another thing. When you get married, you move to the place where your husband lives. There's no no choice about it. That's where you move to. And I had just befriended her and started talking to her. And I was telling her stuff about my past and thinking that I was telling her in confidence. Um, I mean, granted, she actually did sort of do the right thing. She told her husband and then her husband went to the leader of the church at the time. But basically, they ambushed me one day. I think I was about 15, 16. And they said, you have to stop talking about all of this stuff. Um, like basically you've confessed to this woman and you need to stop talking about it now. Like no more stories, no more confiding in her. And I'm like, okay. And they said that they would go and talk to my parents about it. They never did, but I didn't know that. So, and I found out like after I'd left and after my family left years later that that's why I was so angry at my parents. I thought they went and talked to my parents and my parents didn't do anything and they didn't care. In truth, they never went and talked to my parents. So both of us were, I mean, my parents didn't really know why I was so angry. And I went to live for a time with another family because I was so angry at my parents. I didn't even want to live with them. So I went to live with another family and the brethren. And finally at 16, I was just like, this is never going to change. Just, I might as well just go back home. Like nothing's going to come of this. Nothing's going to happen. And so I just went back home and sort of between 16 and 21, I was just trying to figure out how do I get money? Where do I, you know, like I don't, I work for the brother and I worked for a brother in business. So if I leave, I'm not going to have a job. I'm not going to have a place to live. I, how am I going to support myself? It's, it's just crazy. And then, um, I think I'll just say refer to the Get a Life podcast to hear the story about the day I left. It was very traumatic. I, I, um, I you know, it is. I, I watched that podcast. Um, the 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 picture that you paint, and I'm not going to get into like any of the stuff that would make you feel uncomfrable. But just what, the way that you described going to your room to pack oh. a bag. 
Yeah. Right. And and the way that you you looked around the room and and you saw the outfits that they made you wear and you were like, I'm never going to wear that outfit. Again. I'm not taking those. So it would. I guess I'll just tell a brief version sure. instead of the long one that I told. You can, on the you can tell as short as long, yeah. as long as you want. It's um, completely up to you. It's hard. It's crazy that I've been out this, this December 31st will be 24 years. And it's it's amazing to me how heart wrenching it still is to tell that part of the story. So I was working at a brethren business and I actually finished the job they had hired me to do. And I had this, I call it the Holy Spirit. Other people who aren't believers may call it something else. But I had a feeling that something bigger than me was telling me, you're not coming back to work here again. Take your stuff with you. So I took like, you know, my pens and my stapler or whatever, you know, like it was kind of odd. And I remember going and putting them in my car and I came back in and I purposefully went out into the business, like out into the workshop. And I said goodbye to the owner and his sons that worked there. And I remember feeling awkward, like this isn't normal. You, I've never said goodbye to them at the end of the workday. You just leave and you're going to see them again in two hours. Cause like we had church every night, it wasn't really like goodbye. You're going to see them again later that evening. So there's not really a need to say goodbye. And yet I felt this need to go and say goodbye. And little did I know I would never speak to any of them again. I've never seen them, never spoken to them, nothing. And on my way home, my exits, there's three exits in a row on the highway that I could take to get to my house. And all of them were blocked by semis, like weirdly so. Like I just, you couldn't get over, you couldn't get off. And then miraculously, the next exit is like wide open. And I remember getting off and thinking, are you really there, God? Are Is this really you? Are you telling me that I, you're leaving now, like today? And so I stopped by one of my only friends that was not from the brethren. And I told them what had happened. I kind of ended up on their doorstep, like unexpectedly, like I just was driving out of habit. And I'm like, how did I end up here? And I'm sharing with them what had happened. And they thankfully said, we're not going to make this decision for you. Yes, we think you should leave, but we're not going to tell you what to do. This, this is a very, they knew the seriousness of the decision. And they said, you, you go home and you pray about it. They were Christians. And they had actually taken me to, um, some people may know who Max Lucado is. He's a famous author, Christian author. He's the pastor at one of the churches here in San Antonio. And they had taken me once or twice um, to that church. Uh, of course, I went like without anybody knowing. Um, yeah. So I had gone to Christmas Eve service at that church. And there was probably, I don't know, maybe three, four thousand people in the sanctuary. And they sang by candlelight, a silent night. And I remember just sobbing, just like. There's no way that all these people around me are sinners, that all these people are not going to heaven because the brethren tell you only brethren are going to heaven, like that you're privileged. And I just stood there. And I mean, it's just this overwhelming sense of joy in the room. And I just thought there's no way that the brethren are the only Christians on the planet. That's it can't be true. Yeah. And so that was a week before I left. So that day that I left, then I went and looked it up. It was a Thursday. <laughs> so I didn't even know what Chris, I didn't even know what New Year's Eve parties were. That's <laughs> how sad <laughs> I was, my childhood was. So they told me they were having a party and like, basically you could come back and spend the night here if you want to. And so I'm like, okay, I'm not knowing, you know, what I'm walking into. So I went home and I did what they said. I literally knelt down and I prayed, God, if you're really there, if you're really telling me to leave, like, like, tell me, show me. And I clearly, it, it wasn't like a voice. You could, no one else could have heard it, but it was this feeling of get up and pack, get up and pack. Like it's today, you're going today. And basically, if you do this, I'll show you the way. And I was like, oh, my God, I just stood up. And yeah, I mean, so I had an older brother leave home when I was 12. And 
this is now, you know, nine years later, I already know what's going to happen when you leave. They're going to cut you off. You're going to be, it's as if you die and yet you're still alive. Yeah. I'm still still stuck on, on, on the fact that you were four to 11 when, when it happened. Um, As is often the case on my podcast, my daughter is currently hiding under the table and I'm holding her hand and she's six years old. Yeah. (laughs) I can't even, and I can't even fathom. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four kids flashback. You know, so, so, I, so I'm curious, I, I'm, I'm sort of segueing into, um, and I'm going to try to hold it together because she is squeezing my hand right now. And all it's doing is, is making it more real. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have I a nine. To, I, I wanted to ask about your parents. Yeah. So my mom says that she knew that something had happened. She saw evidence and she wanted to go take me to the doctor, go to the authority, something. And my dad told her no, that she couldn't. And, you know, the mother in me says, I don't understand that. Except that if I am to show her some kind of empathy, I can try to put myself in her shoes and know what it was like for all spouses. I mean, they they weren't really wives. They were their slaves. They did whatever their husband said, whenever they said it. And so, but it, th- there's where I say the, the dilemma between my dad's the leader. So he's the boss. Why can't he make this stop? As a little kid, I'm thinking this, like, why does this keep happening? My dad's the boss. He's the leader. And yet it doesn't stop. And then he gets kicked off the throne and I try to go and talk to somebody else and it still doesn't get taken care of. So as you get older, you become more aware of obviously your body's changing. And like, I'm just, I just have this impending doom of you're going to be 18 because when I was, this is when I'm 16, you could get married at 18. And then magically, somehow the rules changed. And right before I turned 18, you had to be 20 to get married. And for me, I was like, oh, thank God, I got two more years. Because <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> to me, this is what marriage was. You have to get married and consummate your marriage that night. And I'm supposed to tell this really stranger, this boy that I marry, I don't really, I'm not doing sex. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what my thought of marriage was. You have to get married and have sex and do whatever he tells you to do. And I'm like, I don't want to be 25 and have five kids under five. Like, I just didn't want that life. And I didn't know another life. And yet I'm like, I'm so terrified of anything in relation to sex. I'm like, yeah, like, I don't, I, the thought of even trying to whatever, I didn't even know what consummate a marriage meant. Yeah. I just knew it meant you had to have sex. And I was like, I, used, oh, I don't want to I know what you mean, because when I was young and I used to hear the word consummate, I just thought of soup broth. <laughs> you know? It's like, what is that? Um, it's a weird term. I, I don't is, know. It, yeah, it is weird. The, the other thing is uh, that I'm thinking of while you're talking, especially before, was the idea of your abuser um, being excommunicated and that still not being enough for them to help you. Elders no, in the church. No, that that person left on their own accord. Like they didn't get 
kicked out. They had left on their own accord. They they chose to go what we called go into the world and go live a worldly life. And so it was like, okay, well, that person's gone. But what about these other two people? They're still here. And I have to see them every day. And so it just, it got to the point where the anxiety of like, you're going to get married soon was just so much so that my body was shutting down. Like I just, I was so anxiety ridden all the time. I had, I mean, the nightmares became daymares. Like there would be times just sitting there that I, I would have terrible flashbacks and I mean, it's like you're reliving it all over again. Um, yeah. It it just it got unbearable. I had terrible stomach cramps. Um, I tried to go to the doctor and like, basically, I was looking for a medical reason for why I was in so much pain emotionally, and of course, there's not one. And I mean, they did a lower GI thing in an upper GI like and they basically just said we can't find anything medically wrong with you we don't know why your stomach hurts and that it just kind of I remember when the doctor told me that I just was like so you're telling me I'm crazy it's just all in my head I, I don't really have anything wrong with me <laughs> because I wanted desperately there to be a reason why I was hurting other than this mental anxiety. And how old were you at the time? I was probably like 17, 18 years old. And you didn't, you obviously probably didn't discuss the trauma that you had experienced. No, I wasn't telling the doctors why I was in pain. (laughs) Are they, are they brethren doctors? No, no. We were allowed to go to regular doctors, Okay. but I knew that I needed help. Like, and I also knew brethren don't believe in, in psychologists. They don't like, they don't believe in mental health um, being a thing that needs that people need help for mental issues. They don't, you're not allowed to visit a psychologist. Actually, I think the rules might've changed recently because of course it's another way to make money. If there I was think ever the, a group that needed to visit psychologists. <laughs> of course. Like, yeah. yeah. I've heard that that the leader now, Bruce Hales, is has said that yes, some people need to go to therapy or whatever. But like you have to go to one that they okay. And I'm sure they tell the therapist you can only say this and that. Like I can't even imagine going to a therapist that's condoned by the brother. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just crazy. So my mom actually told me I, I had gotten a job at 17 as a teacher's assistant because I graduated school early. We had to do homeschool, even though I didn't want to. So I did 10th, 11th and 12th grade in a year and a half. So my classmates were juniors when I graduated and I started subbing because at the time there was no brethren biz- business that had a position that I could work for. And my dad didn't have the kind of business that I could do like paperwork or whatever. Um, anyways, so I started, it's actually, I think a blessing. I started subbing, um, in the local schools. And at first they told me I could only sub at the schools where the brethren kids went. And then I just kind of broke the rules and went to all the schools. (laughs) I didn't really care. Um, and it was, during that time that then I got hired as a teacher's assistant in pre-K and um, I was working for Alamo Heights School District, which is where we lived. Uh, Like that's the schools that I went to when I was little. And it was there that I realized there is a whole nother life. Like you don't have to live this one. And so I, I don't remember exactly how it came about, but after all those medical tests, I was like, I, I have to go see somebody. I've got to seek some help. And my mom told me, if you go, you have to pay for it yourself. And you can't talk about it ever. Like you can't talk about it when you come home to me, you can't talk about it at church. Like you have to keep it a secret that you're going to a psychologist. Don't ever talk about it. Well, so how many secrets it. is a person supposed to be expected to keep? You know, yeah, I mean, yeah, and then I remember at the time, like struggling with 
I mean, obviously you go to therapy, you talk to the counselor, your counselor tells you to go home and discuss whatever. And I'm like, but I can't. So the therapy was only minorly helping because, mm. okay, I could talk about it with her, but I have no way to resolve the issues. Right. Right. And so I just, it just got worse and worse. And there was times when the stomach cramps would get so bad that I would like pass out from the pain and hyperventilate and just like go unconscious. Like it was so bad. I couldn't even hardly walk. And was, and it, so was finally, it eventually realized that it was like severe anxiety or ulcers? Yeah. Like what was it? You know? I just, uh, after all, like basically I exhausted all the medical tests that you could think of. Like there must be something wrong with me. And when I finally realized there's nothing wrong with you. It was like, okay, you either live with this, get married and live this life, or you're going to choose a different life. And so it just took a little while to figure out how to leave, how, how to lead a different life. Because I already knew if I leave, you're giving up all of this because I'd already had a brother do that. So they're not going to speak to you. You're going to call home. They're going to hang up the phone on you. Um, all your friends that are really just acquaintances because they have to be, they're never going to talk to you again. You're not going to, I mean, you lose everything. So the day I left, I lost my job. I lost my house. I lost my social network. I lost my church. I lost my friends. Like my entire way of life was in two suitcases, two suitcases I packed up. And I was like, at the last minute, I threw in my journal to my Bible. And I'm really glad I did because um, I've told Cheryl and Carmen, I kept journals all my life. I guess that was a way to get it out of me. Like I would write stuff. And it's hard for me to go back and read some of them. Some of them are extremely explicit. So that's why, like for me, I know it's not a lie. Like I didn't dream this up. Oh, there's no. written evidence <laughs> yeah i was wondering about um and we don't have to dwell on this at all but um you know if you're a parent and um and your child is being abused for seven eight years isn't there injuries yeah that's that that's what i mean my mom? mom saw evidence right and she felt like she couldn't do anything um you know and i just as a mom now of a nine-year-old, I just can't imagine. Like, if I knew that somebody had done something to my daughter, I'm pretty sure they'd be dead. Like, literally. <laughs> I, I don't I don't think I could let the police handle it. <laughs> no. Like, I just, I can't imagine how you do that. Except for, I know what they lived through. I know how they were raised. And so if you're thinking of it generation upon generation, it's just normal to them, even though it's not normal. <laughs> what, what was it like um, when you went to church and two of your abusers were there and were they ever, you know, deliberately kind of sinister? Did they look at you in a certain way or did they just kind of ignore you? Yeah, no, they, they didn't act like anything was wrong. <laughs> They didn't, they didn't try to do anything. It's not in a, in the church building where people can see it's always somewhere behind closed doors or secretive, you know? Um, so, so the upshot of why I wanted to leave was I had wanted to write a letter, um, to all of them. Well, really, I wanted to go to the care meeting and be like, this person, this person, this person did this stuff. And they're like, oh, that's not what the care meeting is for. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure that is what the care meeting is for. That's what you've used it for. Like I say used it for in the sense of, you know, when other people would do something wrong, they go to the care meeting and call them out in front of the church. And that's what I wanted to do. I'm like, do something about these people. Don't let them keep doing this, you know? And so like, the abuse itself had actually stopped, but as a teenager, I'm I'm still going to church with these people, and I'm thinking again. I have no proof. There just was once you've been abused, you kind of know when other people are being abused. Like I was pretty sure they were doing things to their children, but again, I have no proof. Yeah, 
And so it's this dilemma of what do you do about it? You, you there's no, you don't have a picture of it. You don't catch that. I mean, they haven't been caught in the act yet. Yeah, it's hard to find a recourse when you're that young in order to find justice. Um, I th- this is a difficult question to ask, um, and and I I just want to preface it by saying there's obviously no insinuation or anything, but I know that one of the big things um, of of people, especially men actually, who experience childhood trauma, is the fear of people finding out that they were abused as youngsters because of the perceived pattern of the abused becoming the abuser. Did you ever have to like face anybody um, who sort of had that um, vibe towards you? Or do you, do you understand what I mean by that? Yeah, I actually never have. Um, But like you say, you know, like the general public, views men who have been abused differently than the women or girls like Mm -hmm. and I don't I'm not really sure why because if you're a child you're a child it's just as bad yeah I I think it doesn't matter um, if you're a boy or girl it's still abuse I, I think men that are abused when they're young um a higher percentage of them will go on to be abusers than women I think it's just so Matt, interestingly you know. enough, one of my abusers was a female. Yeah. Two yeah. of them were males and one was a female. And I'm pretty sure all three of them had been abused by the first person. Do you know so, how old um, they were when they were abusing you? Um, let's see. One of them is about five years older than me. The other one is nine years older than me and the other one maybe 10 or 11 years older than me so they were young they're like late teens they were like teenagers doing this to a little girl yeah wow so back to what you were saying i i just Mm -hmm. thought of something when you were saying you were holding your daughter's hand so recently um she's now punching my feet really lightly (laughs) my daughter is nine and she was having some friends over And I've had this, I mean, maybe not unnatural, but this like fear that something's going to happen to her. Like, well, it also took us five years to conceive a child. And so I feel like she's a major blessing. And so I've been like overly protective. Like when I was little, I would, or when she was little, I would like not let go of her hand and like very protective at the store. Like somebody's going to steal my kid. I just always thought something bad was going to happen. Um, yeah. That's the other way. That's the other way that people go. People either go in the direction of, of becoming an abuser uh, that happens a lot, or they go into the total protection, like over like, you know, I, I didn't experience um, what, what you experienced. I've been open about this in vague ways about, um, stuff that happened when I was a kid. But when I grew up, I became um, fiercely, like I, I was afraid to, to like, you know, I'll ba- I would bathe my children when they were really young, but I would never have a bath with them because I was like strikingly, like I was just horribly afraid of accidentally creating a false memory in them. Right, right. Yeah. Me too. Like, you know, don't lock the doors when you're, with your partner because like, you don't want your kid to walk in on you. I turn the light on. I turn the light on on the outside of my house every night before I go to bed, just because it it. Uh, I know that percentage wise, you're 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 going to be less likely to be broken into if your front porch light is on. Right, and for me, it's like the front porch and the back porch and the side yeah. yard has lights that turn on. <laughs> Yeah. If you walk by the motion detected. And because um, you're in Texas, you have guns everywhere around the house. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, here's an example of an unrealistic fear. So I kind of always had this idea that you shouldn't let kids be in rooms with doors closed. And so when my daughter would have friends over, I'm like, that's fine. You can play in your room, but you have to leave the door open. And my husband says to me, we're sitting downstairs on the couch and she's upstairs in her room. And he goes, do you think it really matters if the door is open or closed? Like if something's going to happen, isn't it going to happen regardless of the door being open or closed? 
And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, he's right. Because I instantly had a flashback of one of the people when he was messing with me. It was like a game to him. The door was open at what we called the Sunday breaks where you have people assigned to your house for the lunch meal. And so like literally in the downstairs part of the house in the guest room, we're on the far side of the bed to where if you look in the door, you can't see right down onto the ground because like your eye, you know, your eyesight, line of sight. It was almost like a game. He was almost trying to get caught without getting caught because instantly I had this flashback of the comforter, the curtains, the nightstand, the everything that was happening. And it was like, he kept peeking over the edge of the bed to make sure no one could see him. And the door's wide open. And when my husband said that, it suddenly just like, I started crying. I was like, you're right. It doesn't matter if the door is open. They can, bad people can still do bad things. And of course, yeah. then like after I left the brethren, I became a teacher. And unfortunately, when you're a teacher, you see and hear and kids tell you stuff. And and I just I'm like, I just realized that this this idea that I could pe- protect her forever is just not it's not real. You, you can't, you, you have to give them the tools to be able to defend themselves. And then if something bad does happen, I hope I've, I hope she trusts me enough to tell me, like I couldn't tell my mom, but I hope that she, I hope she knows she can tell me anything. Yeah. I hope, I mean, I hope that too. I'm all, but I'm all, I'm still very, um, I wouldn't call it helicopter parenting because I, I think like there are certain things that happen when in, in the seventies, eighties, nineties, probably still happens. Um, you know, like I couldn't even fathom sending my like 10, 11 year old son on a hockey tournament with some other person's dad. Are you fucking yeah. kidding? <laughs> like, that yeah. would never happened in a million years. Um, and I don't know why any parent would. It, it, no. and, and I know that for some people that's like, well, oh, it's a little paranoid. Yeah, maybe. You know, yeah. but I, that that's the way it is. You know, um, to mini, to mitigate the risk of something bad happening to my children, they're not going to go spend weekends with adults that I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> call me crazy. You know, exactly. <laughs> I'm right there one. with you. My yeah. daughter's in fourth grade, and next year in fifth grade, they go on this science camp trip, and, and I'm like, chaperone. Yeah. She's only going if I'm a chaperone. That's right. That's right. I'm going to be taking a lot of trips exactly. <laughs> in the next 10 years, you know? Um, or if you're if, in sports, like, I'm, I'm going on every trip. Yeah. Um, now, I, I don't want to – I don't want this to sound cheap because I don't mean it like the way Geraldo w- would mean it or something. But um, – if you were able, because because now that I know that these people that abused you were teenagers when they did it, it, it kind of puts a different spin on it than if they were forty. You know, like a, there is a, there is, and I'm not saying it's it's better or worse or anything like that. Um, but it has a different ring to it, and I'm wondering if you um if you would if if you were able to speak to to them um at now, what would you say to them? Well, I actually, after I left, I did speak to all of them. Oh, you um, did? Yeah, because the brother wouldn't let me. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to do it my way. Yeah. Um, so I don't remember too much of what they said exactly, except that two of them were just like, of course, they were still in the brethren and I was out now. So they basically just stood at their front door, came out on the front porch and were like, oh, I'm so sorry. I I don't really, I'm sorry if I did that. I don't really remember that or whatever. And I was like, okay, I guess what else do I say? And um, the other person also said that and um, it's just, there's some things that have happened in that person's life that I feel like they've paid their dues, I guess <laughs> they, they had yeah. to deal with some things themselves. And so 
I feel like we've come to an understanding. And this is the part that is very definitely, I feel like, supernatural. I don't hate any of them. I forgave all of them like almost immediately when I left. And I really just like people say, well, how do you forgive them? I, I don't know. Logically, I don't have a reason. I just felt, I don't know, that like God has forgiven us for so much that we in turn forgive others. Now, what's funny about that is I feel like I've forgiven my abusers but I still hold a lot of resentment against the leaders in the church that knew stuff and didn't do anything. And since Richard Marsh and Cheryl have come on your show and all of this is like blowing up, it's, it's that same thing that Cheryl says. It's not really that you want someone to go to prison. You want them to, you want the world to know just like, we all know that Catholics had all these pedophiles. I want everyone to know Plymouth Brethren Christian Church. There's nothing Christian about it. They're not a church. They're a cult. I want them to be famous, like you say, like mm -hmm. that these are evil people. Their RRT is a joke. The UBT is a joke. It's a it's a manipulative, awful, controlling cult. And now it seems like it's all about money. And like, and this is their this is their leader. His name is Bruce Hales. Yes. He enables pedophilia. He takes money from localities like Tony Soprano and cash and stuffed envelopes. Um, and this is the guy who thinks that there isn't a problem. And whenever he's faced with a person who writes him and says, "I've been abused," he calls it lies. This yes. is the face of pedophilia as far as the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church goes. And I don't care if he sues me. I have nothing. Yeah, go ahead and sue me. Go ahead and sue me. Yeah. I'm not saying anything false. Leave yourself open to disclosure because that would be wonderful. You want to yeah. sue me? Great. Let's put all our evidence on the table and see who walks away. You know? Yeah, exactly. I'm right. actually seriously considering, I don't know if you know, in the United States recently, Joe Biden passed a law that um, childhood sexual abuse, you can sue uh, on the civil side, not the criminal. Right. And um, there's no statute of limitations. There's no now. statute of limitations. Of course, getting a lawyer to take the case and, you know, all that would cost a lot of money. But um, I'm, I'm actually really, oh, I'm writing a book and eventually it'll get published. But like, I, I've kind of like gotten fierce about, oh, look at her. Yeah. <laughs> I've gotten kind of like, on fire about this needs to come out and if we can create some I, I don't even know how you would make a lawsuit worldwide like because it's multiple countries and multiple laws I'm, I suppose you'd have to have a court case in each country where the yeah. brethren exist I mean I went on the Catholic thing this morning and I was looking at like all the there, there's a website that lists all the court cases and all the how much money has been paid out and all this stuff and i'm like okay let's do that for the brother or any cult i mean you got the whatever legacy school up there in canada and yeah. we had warren jeffs in the flds here you know like mormon scientology in new zealand there was that gloria vale cult like i don't care what cult it is mm -hmm. stop and if you want to believe that stuff, if you want to go to church with those people, I'm more than happy to let you go. Just stop hurting children and stop destroying families. Like that's where I get so passionate and angry. And my husband would be telling me, shh, quiet down. <laughs> like, I get really real. <laughs> <shush me. laughs> yeah, I'm exactly. not shush, shush me. Like, <laughs> yeah. like that's where I'm at. I'm just yeah. somebody do something. Yeah. Make this stop. Stop well, destroying I, families. I don't know if I have a magic bullet to make it stop, but I know that whatever it is that I'm doing here um, and whatever it is that, uh, you know, the Get a Life podcast is doing, um, we'll just keep on doing it and, and we'll continue to hope. I started contacting um, politicians that represent the riding that Maple Creek is inside today. So 
we're going to see where that takes us. Um, I want to really thank you for coming on uh, because I think that, um, you know, I know it's painful. I know you shared your story before. um, And I know that every time you do, um, I'm sure that there, it's, it can be a little bit nerve wracking, but um, the, well, it, it makes the, you like, like y- you leave it. And that night you have nightmares in the next couple of days, your stomach's kind of tore up. But I do want to say one last thing though, before sure. we go, like I want people who are in a cult or in a religious organization. Cause I don't think, you know, you're in a cult when you're in one. Right. And so if you have an organization or a spouse or whatever that is telling you, you have to do X, Y, and Z, you need to get away. Like, and it doesn't matter what they tell you about all this crap of you're going to go to hell and you're going to burn in the hottest place in hell. It's not true. And there's a whole wonderful life out here. So like, I want to do like step two after all this, then I left, I got out. I went to college. I got a, I, I put them up behind me. I'm like, I got a bachelor's and a master's. I became a teacher. I helped other kids in bad situations. Um, my husband and I got married. We've had a wonderful life. He served in the military. We got to travel. We have a beautiful little girl. Like my life is great now. <laughs> I really do have a very, I feel very blessed, very lucky. Well, you know, listen, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't turn to drugs. I didn't turn to alcohol. I didn't become a prostitute. You know, I mean, there's just so many things. Um, well, what I was going to say is that, um, you know, you just coming on here and sharing your story is helping people. I know it is, you know, I, and, and, and I saw it with Cheryl. I saw the, um, the after effect and the tidal wave of messages that Cheryl got and that I received. It's I was happen. It, it, yeah, you were, that's how we met. That's exactly yeah. right. Um, and um, I'm glad it worked out the way it did. I'm glad you were able to share your story with the Get a Life podcast first. I, I don't know why. I just feel like being around people that have um, that um, particular facet of their bio being the same, i.e. being an ex-member of, of that group, I think um, probably assisted not only you in telling your story, but in getting more eyeballs on it. Um, you know, there's yeah. over a thousand people have seen that podcast. Yeah. Um, and that podcast only has a couple hundred subscribers. So that's great. Um, and I think what, the, what we'll, what I'll find is that there'll be more people here as well. That will um, come forward. That will come forward. And yeah. uh, so you've already done it. You've just done the heavy lifting. All I've done yeah. is supplied a platform and, and, and allowed um, you to, to talk about your truth. And I appreciate that more than, you know, um, Laura well, Payne. I appreciate it that you have us on because I mean, I wanted to go to the police and I was too scared. And now the statute of limitations, at least criminally is passed, whether yeah. or not in the future, there could be a, a, you know, some kind of class action lawsuit. I don't know. Um, I actually, I don't know if I told you, I actually did call the local police and the FBI in the United States. Yeah, you did. And, um, they're, there just isn't anything yeah. that can be done criminally. Um, well, let's, so let's, we'll let's see. do what, let's do what we, we, um, what I always say that I want to do on this podcast and let's make this asshole famous. So yeah. And let's make uh, the PBCC famous for not being a church. They're that's a cult. right. That's <laughs> right. Um, Laura Payne, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Um, this little one here, always sort of making her cameo appearances on the podcast. Are you okay? Are you okay? Um, I'm usually a little annoyed when she gets up here and she starts doing her thing, but this time it was, uh, you know, it was fitting. Don't make a habit of it, but today was fitting with you because, uh, she held my hand literally at when, when at that point where, where Laura said that she was, uh, you know, four to 11. And I have this little six-year-old holding my hand at that moment. And that was, um, that just brings it all home. And uh, so I'd like to thank Laura again uh, for being on the show. Um, And uh, I'll be on the Dean Blundell show today at three o'clock. So uh, we'll see you then. And we will see you next time on Blackballed. Thanks, everybody. Black, 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 black
Hey listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer. Such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster. And not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. I'm Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.